I'm Dr. Ashley McClure, a primary care doctor and medical community climate organizer and mom. Welcome to my podcast, Courageous Medicine, where I interview fellow physicians to hear their personal stories of when they first faced the climate crisis, how they see the responsibilities of being a physician as a call to climate solutions advocacy, and what gifts engaging in climate activism has given their lives. Do you want to start off by sharing um, about yourself, and then we'll dive into kind of some of the um, the story and background of what you've done? Great. So I'm Margaret Klein-Solomon. I'm a clinical psychologist, but while I was earning my PhD, I had a existential crisis about the climate emergency and uh, became inspired to do everything that I could to, as we say, cancel the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. I founded the organization's The Climate Mobilization and its affiliate Climate Mobilization Project, and I currently serve as the board chair of both organizations. That we, What we did is introduce a new paradigm into the climate movement, which is the need for World War II-scale climate mobilization, because this is an existential emergency. Authored Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. It's a radical self-help book for these terrible emergency times. Can you remember the moment where you had the awakening? Or was there a moment, or was it more of a series of moments that made you realize, this has to change me and my life? Yeah, there was actually a, a moment that um, that my life is kind of like before and after that moment, um, which is uh, I was having a conversation with a good friend about how alarmed we both were about the climate emergency. And we agreed that the response to this needed to be so massive in scale, so larger than anyone was talking about. And at the time, I was planning to see patients in the morning and write commentary about the climate emergency in the evening, uh, because that's how I viewed myself as a psychologist and an academic. Um, So writing commentary seemed to fit. Um, But my friend said to me, don't start a blog. Discourse isn't enough. Think, what can you do to actually solve this? emergency. And it was like my, it was like my mind exploded or something. I I mean, seriously, it was, um, it was like before and after. And I mean, I like, I was like, (laughs) oh my God, what a great idea. I've never, I never thought, you know, so big, you know, oh, actually try to solve climate change. I became just totally obsessed, uh, first with doing research and trying to figure out you know, what made sense to do. And then with actually launching the organization and, but I mean, in that time period, right around that conversation, I mean, people said to me, like, (laughs) I'm worried about you um, in a way that they never really had in my life before. And it was just, I mean, it was like really such an extreme um, like shift for me. Um, But, but, I mean, it was, it was also funny because I was like, oh no, I feel, I feel so confident and so like correct on this mission that, you know, that I'm doing the right thing. Like there have been times in my life that maybe it would have been good to have people worry about me, but not, not about this. Um, So anyway, 
yeah, it was it was the challenge of uh, <laughs> actually trying to solve the emergency that that changed my life. Mm-hmm. Totally. What what time period was that? About seven years ago. Could you go back to? So you started. You mentioned how friends and family were worried when you were first yeah. diving in, and like no, you know, no holds barred. It sounded like this is what I'm gonna put all of my energy in, not just my afternoons or my evenings. What did that look like when you were, and why were they worried? I I would, you know, using clinical language, I would probably diagnose myself at that time as hypomanic, which means, you know, mildly manic. I mean, I was, I was sleeping. um, And, but, you know, I think I was talking quickly and kind of had a spark in my eye that it was like maybe a, a bit more than people are used to. I, at that point, I was thinking, okay, I'll quit. I'll leave my PhD program. But I only had one year left. And so it, every single person in my life told me that that was a terrible decision and that I should just get the PhD and that would help me in my climate pursuits and I could you know, work in the evenings for that one year and whatnot. And, and so I, I did do that. But anyway, yeah, I think people were just like, what? You're, you want to leave your PhD program and go do what? You know, <laughs> like uh, some like grandiose possibly strategy about changing the world. Like, I, I mean, it just, it's not that normal a thing for people to do. I think it should probably be a lot more normal. One way to put it, the American model uh, for whatever at upper middle class or you know college educated whatever ambition ambition you know achievement success I did not choose the path of most personal advancement or career trajectory so yeah I think it's just the freaks people out which is super ironic because I think your ambition was so much greater than any individual right. has like your ambition right. was was meta thank goodness so um the, there's a lot of irony in that it's like personal ambition is what we're we're you know more socialized to appreciate I think rather than the collective yeah no you're you're absolutely right and the feeling of pursuing this mission and making this kind of change in the world it made me feel more successful and confident and happy with myself than all of the whatever A's I got at Harvard. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Can you name what made it personal for you? Like what broke it through kind of the the intellectual knowledge to something that was really personal. In general, I'm a very emotional person, so I also have a very personal and emotional reaction to, you know, global poverty, for example, you know, mm-hmm. like but but with with climate I um could kind of imagine the world falling apart in a way that I don't yeah, I think that most people can't or or don't let themselves. Yeah, so I think um, imagining that and knowing, you know, as I, as I write about in my book, I had this, uh, traumatic loss in, in high school where my beloved boyfriend became psychotic. I think that experience really gave me a somewhat like apocalyptic sensibility. Um, that and my grandmother's experience in the Holocaust just, um, 
and her and how she would t- tell us about it. Uh, just a kind of an understanding that horrible things happen. Like this is not whatever life is not like happy go lucky kind of thing that I think whatever we're, we're sold anyway by like, uh, you know, Hollywood and, you know, advertising propaganda. Like when I started to understand the climate emergency, I could, yeah, I could really imagine how it would destroy everything. And I knew that could really happen. Not just, you know, I think for some people, it seems like science fiction or something. So there was like a sense of vulnerability that you were aware of that wasn't theoretical and then kind of empathy actually for like all that there could be lost. Things things fall apart. Americans particularly I think have a real false sense of security about how strong our institutions are. It is definitely my love for my friends and family and uh the human family um and all life it is definitely my love that motivates me in fear of loss i i have i have a niece and a nephew and a puppy <laughs> life is such a miracle and uh, yeah I, I just want it to continue and not have a civilization collapse so yeah back after you you had your climate awakening and you were like what can i actually do that would make a significant real difference not taken hypothetical. What did you, what was your first step you took? So, okay, to be, to be honest, it, that wasn't, that wasn't the mission to, to make a real difference. The mission was to actually solve the, the problem, which is obviously both, you know, half crazy, but half like exactly right, because mm-hmm. that's what we have to do. You know, it's not like a lone actor kind of thing, but it's like, uh, you know, create a vision that goes all the way. So what I started doing after that was research. I just I just started reading about the, about the climate, um, but not primarily. Uh, reading I was reading about uh, social movements and mm-hmm. World War II history. I uh, mm-hmm. how learning about how this country transformed in just a few years from a civilian economy to a war economy was the most hopeful thing I had ever come across. The the most hopeful book I ever read about the climate emergency is No Ordinary Time by Doris Kearns Goodwin, A History of World War II. Um, And yeah, and I read about denial and, and social movements and yeah, just started to formulate more and more, um, the, the idea of a, the climate emergency, climate mobilization paradigm and, you know, strategies about how to um, bring that to the world. Yeah, I think just trying to generalize a little bit from my experience, I think that, well, I think that we're in a different place now in the climate movement, like the, the climate emergency movement actually exists now like it's not you don't have to thankfully this and this is like the point (laughs) you don't have to be a lone wolf you know uh advocating for transformative and emergency speed responses there's actually um 
you know, thousands and thousands of, of people doing just that in the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion and local organizing and indigenous organizing. And like, this is, um, I don't think the depth of research that I undertook is necessary for everyone to, to undertake right now. But I mean, certainly a component of increasing your knowledge about, about things like social movements and, and how they work and what's happening in the climate social movement um, is, is great. Mm -hmm. totally yeah you the you have been a part of moving forward the social movement creating one for climate um so i'd like to also because this the fact that you are in kind of the healing profession and you you know are a psychologist how do you see the values of psychology and of medicine and of kind of the health professions how does that inform your work and was that part of like why you felt compelled? Yeah. So my father is a psychoanalyst and my mother was going to be a clinical psychologist, but uh, changed, became a kindergarten teacher, changed course. But so it's it's very much been a kind of part of my outlook and mentality from childhood that the kind of understanding that people have all these feelings and that often people are driven by things that they don't understand and that people should be always growing and developing internally and so just this kind of orientation that it's such a wonderful kind of magical thing to be able to heal people through talking through understanding and you know, relationship. I, yeah, for, for me, I think the values of facing the truth, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard is, is really core for me. But I think, I think beyond the, yeah, like psychological that, yeah, the, the healing professions, I mean, to be a doctor or a yeah psychologist, what a, a therapist, you know, you're taking on a lot of responsibility. People, people are, are, trusting you with their lives and souls and so th there's a feeling of significantly increased responsibility of like you know do no harm and um uh, yeah I'm taking this person is in my care and so that mentality is I mean is kind of what I think we should try to have with the planet and the climate emergency just like this is not separate from me. This is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yeah, the the natural sense of taking responsibility for caring for someone else and their safety and health, uh, that that's part of what our professions are built on. And then we have this new existential crisis, which needs a lot of action to protect from, you know, and, and take responsibility for that new threat. Um, that that lands especially on the healing professions, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the the, the world is broken. People in the healing professions, absolutely, or, or people out of them, but who have some ideas about how to fix the world and motivation to do so. I mean, it's like, yeah, we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> we do. Yeah, I, one of my um, mentors from afar, Dr. Don Berwick, who... Um, he just wrote a piece called The Moral Determinants of Health in JAMA. And one of the pieces of it was when the fabric of society is, is broken, the healers are called to mend it, um, which I think really invokes like, you know, who the healers are beyond 
um, our one-on-one -on -one interactions, but really our kind of social role. And I think that's um, really, really important and kind of not not as widely held or understood as it as it could and should be. It's a similar spirit, I think, to Alice Walker's poem, Calling All Grandmothers. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. that one. She, huh. she calls on all grandmothers everywhere on the planet to rise and take your place in leadership of the world. The idea of wisdom, caring. Yeah, definitely. Somebody recently, yesterday was talking about um, health professionals and caregivers, you know, and that's like the mothers out front and I think the same like the thousand grandmothers too for climate action. Um, that care is really what's at the root of motivating it or action. And I'd also love to hear when you first, like when you decided to not kind of go through the career pathway that you'd been training for, how did you support yourself? Yeah, so this is critical uh, important information is that uh, my husband supported both of us, mm -hmm. right? And so, and, you know, being able to do what I did is a, is a tremendous privilege. There's a lot of people who could do this. There's a lot of volunteering full-time, if possible, I think is a really, um, can be a really powerful thing to do. Um, or, you know, or half time and work half time or whatever, whatever, whatever works for you. But yeah, I, I've, I've made very little money over the past seven years. Very big impact, but that's something I'm really curious about because I think a lot of people struggle with that, you know, how to, how to put their full-time energy in what they feel is most important and the science says is, um, and still pay the mortgage is, is really hard. Absolutely. It's a, it is such a terrible condemnation of our society and economy that it is so hard to try to save the world <laughs> that there's, that there's like not funding for that. You can't, that's like, I mean, yeah, but if you want to uh, sell <laughs> crap that no one needs, you know, you're fine. <laughs> totally. Oh, it is a sad commentary. Um, and then I, I would love to hear, like, in a personal way, like, who Margaret is today versus eight years ago. What has your um, jump, jumping into climate activism, what has it given your life as for you as a person? Yeah, uh, wow. I mean, it's just been such an incredible adventure. Like, I've met so many people who I would never otherwise have met um, at like, I think for example, uh, Raffi, the children's singer who I grew up with, you know, loving and Adam McKay, the director of uh, the big short and vice, like, and all, and all the, you know, the people who have helped me build the organization and do this work and people in, you know, congressional staffs and all these things. I mean, I like being a clinical psychologist is great, but there there is a some element of boundedness in a way that um this journey has been so expansive um and yeah, I just i mean the level of excitement is just to to really feel like okay, we are changing the world, we're doing it like yeah, and also it's a it's a great relief to kind of care about something more than yourself um like you know get away from insecurities about you know how you look and 
whether someone likes you or whatever as just like, ah, forget about that. That's, you know, who has the time? Um, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's something much, um, much more meaningful that you're kind of concerned with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the, the excitement of kind of being interdisciplinary really is what it sounds like. Um, yeah. And then definitely the, contextualizing concerns in a much greater uh, value system. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in, in doing this work, I've used like every capacity and skill and like learned new ones and learned all about this. So many things about, you know, I mean, bylaws and employment law and I, I mean, and, you know, energy systems and just like everything and yes, it feels great to be fully engaged and in something that feels so meaningful. Mm-hmm. How did the writing your book come in to um, to your work? Like how how did you how did it become apparent that that was necessary? A friend of mine and my my husband is a professional writer who, with her partner, was her, uh, launching a book uh, imprint. Um, and, uh, and they were planning to offer, uh, full, like soup to nuts help with books, uh, for, for authors that, you know, uh, conceptualizing the book and writing and editing and publishing on their imprint. And they were going to do four trial books where they were going to offer all of this support for free. So, and that was just, I felt an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, so Molly Gage, you know, who's on the, on the cover, um, mm-hmm. she's actually the, 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 the partner of my, um, my friend, uh, Jessica Knight. Uh, but so yeah, she helped me, uh, every step of the way with this book. I like self-help books. I, I'm interested in them. Um, I wrote my, I wrote my college thesis on an ethnography of dating self-help books and their use among, <laughs> um, and their use among college students. That's um, amazing. <laughs> I, I love I love writing. Um, you know, my friend my friend said to me at the you know at the outset of this, he said, you know, Discord, don't start a blog. Discord isn't enough, uh, but it is. He was right. But some of the most powerful things I've done have been through writing. So hmm. yeah, yeah. And has it? What kind of impact do you feel like the book is starting to have? First of all, it is. So frustrating. I mean, like, I do not recommend launching a book during a pandemic. Um, it, it launched in April this year, and every book event was canceled. Um, so, the wow. sales sales are low. I mean, like, I actually I don't I, like around five thousand. It's frustrating to me because the other half of the answer is I get amazing feedback. Mm-hmm. I, I I mean, I I, I get like this book changed my life. I really feel uh, dedicated to doing something now. I, I'm giving this book to 10 friends, you know, I mean like this kind of feedback. So, so it's like I, uh, that, yeah. which is wonderful. Obviously that's very gratifying to hear, but it also just increases my frustration about mm-hmm. like, come on, this is worth your yeah. time. Yeah. How to get it out and get the message out there to everybody. Yeah. Which, Brings me to another thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on is if somebody yesterday 
kind of had their climate awakening moment, like, oh my God, I have to engage and help, you know, solve this existential crisis. If that was your friend and they were like, Margaret, what do I do? <laughs> what would you tell somebody who's just getting started um, of how to plug in? It's a really, really complicated and personal question. I, I, I think it's as complicated and personal as what career to choose. Um, but it's a super important question. So, you know, I would, I would, there, but there's just no one specific answer. So I would, I would talk with the person um, and try to get a sense of a few things, which I do lay out in facing the climate emergency. Uh, it's step five, join the climate emergency movement. And I, I talk about, you know, just a bunch of considerations. For example, how much time do you have to devote? How, how, what's your risk tolerance? Are you, are you willing to get arrested? Um, are you willing to fundraise? Are you, you know, just different, different entry points? Or do you are, do you have special skills like graphic design or bookkeeping? Have you ever done community organizing before? So these, these kinds of, uh, considerations and are, are need to be, need to be addressed individually. I, but I, you know, one of the big takeaways, um, from my experience, I think is the importance of taking on a mission, um, you know, just the general idea of I want to help or, you know, I want to be a part of it is good, right? A, you know, a good place to start. Um, but I, I think really one of the things that was so effective in what I did is just is take on, yeah, just take on a mission. So, um, and, it, and it was a really big one. <laughs> um, and, that, and I think that's good, right? I think that's, you know, we need that kind of fast change, fast and huge change. So, so for example, if you are attached in some way to an institution, like a student or a, uh, you know, doctor in a university hospital or a, uh, you know, an employee or uh, that to at least consider the mission, of bringing that institution into emergency mode. Um, and, you know, I mean, because there's a serious component of, you know, like lead where you are, you're, you're always gonna have the biggest impact among people who, uh, you know, you're connected with, you know, if, with, for whom you're a trusted messenger. There's a lot of missions out there to have, um, but uh, in general, I mean, I think the, the basic formulation is people need to wake up we need we need a, a national consensus that this is a acute existential threat and uh, World War II scale climate mobilization all out. You know the government should spend without limit to save as much life as possible. Uh, you know letting uh, industries die and retraining workers into different industries. Even we need we just need the the kind of approach we need is so drastically different from what we have that, uh, you know, I, I certainly want to encourage everyone to think of themselves as part of a transformative project that like, as you know, as opposed to gradualism, um, which uh, is just a, a failed strategy. And at, at this point, I mean, truly a waste of time and resources. So it sounds like your step five is kind of looking each person 
looking at their own tools and gifts and then determining kind of how to use those in the bigger movement um, with their own kind of starting where they are. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and in order to effectively do that, there is a lot of, there's, I mean, there's also the question of like, how do social movements work and, you know, which, which group to join and, um, and there's, you know, personal preference involved in that as well. You know, if you're a young person, you might be interested in a group with young people, but, um, but uh, there's also, you know, it's a theory and, you know, it's a, it's a, an art and a science and uh, above of organizing and social movements. So I do think, you know, getting some education in that reading, like, for example, um, rules for revolutionaries by Zach Exley and Becky Bond, um, which they, they organized Bernie Sanders 2016 distributed organizing. So the, the barnstorms, um, and, and they set that up. So, so that was terrific. Uh, Hegemony How To by Jonathan Smucker. And, um, and uh, This Is an Uprising by Paul Engler. Um, it, these like, yeah, so learning, yeah, I think learning more about how social movements work and how change happens is, can also help people, uh, you know, kind of define their mission and think about where their skills and gifts and uh, resources can be best leveraged. Mm -hmm. Totally. Those are great. I had only two of those. So thank you um, for the tip. I, I'm also wondering, um, I really love what I've heard you talk about on other conversations about the, how we humans evaluate risk socially. Yeah. And um, if you could speak a little bit about that and if you, is there a way that you think about that being different of like the voice of physicians in helping people evaluate risk? If you could just like, yeah, talk about how you applied that concept to climate. And then if there is a specific thing that comes to mind for like the role of physicians and nurses talking about risk, that'd be great to hear. How do people decide whether a situation is a kind of normal situation uh, or an emergency? Um, and, you know, as, as part of that, whether it needs to be handled in a kind of gradual, perhaps casual manner, or it needs to be addressed with a totally different uh, mindset because it's, it's uh real danger. And as I said, this, this is evaluated, we evaluate this socially, uh, rather than rationally that, that, um, you know, say with COVID, for example, uh, the issue of how other people in your neighborhood, in your network, um, in your family are take, are taking COVID and what kind of restrictions they're, um, undertaking is so much more likely to determine what you do rather than what you've heard about the facts. Um, so in a, how, how this is working with the climate emergency, this kind of, uh, yeah, group risk evaluation is uh, called pluralistic ignorance, which means as we look to each other to see what the situation holds, 
we say, well, uh, people are acting normal. The people I see are acting normal. So it must not be an emergency. Um, and so, yeah, this kind of situation is uh, unfortunately common in, if in things like the urban bystander effect where, where people, someone's, you know, passed out uh, on the street and people just keep walking by assuming that, that whatever, that it, it must be okay or, um, and if it, it rather if it's just one person or two people um, that come across someone uh, immobilized, you know, lying down on the ground, they're much, much, much more likely to help because they don't feel basically the social pressure of not helping and the sense that that has been determined by the group as the, the right thing to do. So, so with the climate, just by living our lives, just by you know, going about everything as usual, planning your career, planning your family, planning your retirement, planning, you know, any, just pursuing that kind of normalcy um, and not talking about climate, not being obsessed with climate, not, um, that uh, unfortunately creates this kind of pluralistic ignorance, this uh, kind of groupthink, let's say, in which um, everyone, has a sense that something is wrong, but looks at everyone else and says, well, I guess they're, they seem normal. So it, I must be, I must be exaggerating things in my mind. It, um, so by, by the, the good thing about understanding this, how, how we evaluate risk and how we look to each other to see how to evaluate risk is that it can be intervened. In. It can the this effect can be flipped, and once the group does start evaluating this as an emergency, some you know tremendous uh, resources can be mobilized to deal with it. So, in in terms of physicians, um, I think and 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 talking with patients about risk, I think uh, it it's like what f f physicians are trying to do. On an individual level, what the movement is trying to do on the on the collective level, which is, you know, let's say uh, you have a diabetic patient who needs to change their diet, right? But you know, that's not how how their friends and family eat, right? So so uh, what you're what you're trying to do is like overwhelm the normal uh, approach to, to like this risk is worth leaving normal behind. It's that bad. Um, and that that's, yeah, that's just what the movement is doing, trying to do. Mm, totally. Yeah. I've thought about that parallel a lot of, you know, part of physician's role is, is, translating science which can feel very kind of theoretical and not personally relevant and helping it become personally relevant so that people can make those changes um which are sometimes very uncomfortable um but i like that that metaphor this is worth leaving normal behind <laughs> it's a great quote um thank you for that i think I'm also curious, so if you could speak a little bit to what is the climate mobilization doing now? And then where are you headed, especially with the, thank God, um, administration change? Where do you see 
things going? Uh, so the climate mobilization after achieving this kind of runaway success with the climate emergency declaration campaign, now over 1800 cities have declared or governments have declared a climate emergency, including recently Japan and New Zealand. Um, we are focusing on implementing climate emergency, developing and implementing climate emergency policy at the local level. Um, and hopefully state level um, that like, for example, uh, after declaring a climate emergency, Berkeley, California banned uh, gas hookups in new construction and then about 20 other cities picked up that ban. So that like in, in the kind of climate emergency program that we're building, that would be just one measure of a suite of aggressive measures to ban fossil fuels wherever we can and, um, and you know, undertake a rapid and just transition. So that is, uh, yeah, so we're focusing on developing the ultra ambitious local policy that, that then can uh, scale up, that, get, that can be adopted by other cities and states and ultimately federal government. So, but um, I am personally, um, staying on at the climate mobilization as the board chair, but uh, transitioning out as executive director um, in order to focus on the psychological uh, work that I feel like, it, while obviously organizing and policy development is critically important work, I, I, don't, I don't think that's um, like the best use of my skill set. Uh, at this point, now that basically now that the paradigm has been so um, had so much broad pickup. So yeah, Matt Renner is the new executive director. And um, yeah, they're, it's the uh, I think it's I think that they've got a solid strategy. Um, I am in like exploration and development mode of uh, the climate psychology project. Uh, that will come next for me that we're calling climate awakening. Um, it's but the the basic focuses will be on scalable emotional conversations around the climate emergency and creating interventions, large scale interventions that get people talking and feeling the climate emergency. I participated in one of the beta tests. Oh, uh, great. A couple weeks ago, and it was really, really powerful. Well, th th thank you so much for bringing this up. I didn't realize that. Um, so Ashley is referring to the, we, we've been using this software uh, called Voice Voice, but that creates, we, we've created a kind of curated conversation in which uh, called Breaking the Silence, uh, Sharing Climate Emergency Feelings, in which you can do it with a group, like a you know, group of friends or whatever, you can choose your group, or in this case, you can bring a group of uh, you know, strangers together. And we there's a series of videos and then discussion prompts, such as, you know, how do you feel about the climate emergency? And it's really been amazing you know, I've hosted a lot of these conversations in person and on Zoom, and now this new platform of, you know, hosting in absentia or whatever, 
Um, but what's, what's amazing to me, honestly, is just how well it works. I, I mean, it, it's really quite easy to do. Um, all it takes is a kind of emotional safety, um, you know, just laying the ground rules. We are not here to criticize or disagree with anybody's uh, feelings. Uh, we're here to share our own feelings and listen um, empathically. And yes, yeah, so, also setting that kind of ground rule and then just inviting people to share about their feelings. But, and it's, so it's why it's always successful. And I'd love to hear more about your experience, but is because this is a drastically under-discussed crisis. The people report just again and again and again. Wow, it felt amazing to be a, kind of affirmed that other people feel this way too. Definitely. So yeah, yeah tell I, me about yours. Well, remember it was the movie. Um, and Fight I, Club. Fight Club, thank you. <laughs> and I, for the first time, had that feeling like, I need this like a lot. I need this like every other day to just have these conversations where people really are sharing what they are like constantly, uh, you know, terrified about. Um, and you're right. I think it's completely accurate. And there's such a need for facilitating that conversation because it's not normal to bring it up or you're the, you know, oh, here comes Ashley. She's going to talk about climate crisis again. So it was it was really powerful to have that and to just have that community, especially because everybody's so isolated right now. And, you know, the like the need for connection that is even greater than normal. How many um, people were on your call? Five total. OK. OK. Yeah, I heard about this one. People cried, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's always I honestly that's like my that's like my shorthand for if it if it was successful. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, yeah. because I mean, it's like, seriously, if you, if, we're, if you're not feeling it, it's like, it's not coming through. This is, this is worth crying over, Yeah, yeah you know, definitely. like, yeah. And I loved in, in one of your videos, you said something, and I think this is especially relevant for physicians and nurses is, you know, we're, we're trained to only give our opinion about things we're experts on. And you know, none of us are James Hansen, like we're not climate experts, but we know enough. But I loved what you said, which is everybody, you know, there's climate experts and there's scientists, but everybody has feelings about the, the future for their children or their nieces or the, you know, the national park that they love. And we all, everyone is entitled to be a part of the emotional impact of you know, a ca catastrophic future and, and how that brings everybody into the conversation because you don't have to be an expert or have letters behind your name to, to really be terrified and concerned and, and that that's how everybody can be a part of it is because it's something that emotionally impacts everyone. And, right, and again, we evaluate risk socially so in many ways to, to people, to your, to your people, your friends and family and colleagues and neighbors, what you think and feel will have more impact than James Hansen and, and the IPCC. They don't, they don't know those people. They know you and they care about you. And, you know, so if you say, you know, I've been 
absolutely freaking out recently because of the climate emergency. I, you know, I, I can't sleep. I, uh, I've been, you know, I've been crying, whatever, or, you know, obviously whatever is authentic for you, it could be a different experience. But if you, if you express that that is what is going on for you, that, I mean, that is, that's a big deal. That is a big deal. And if you ask someone to also, you know, by, by sharing that and you already are inviting them, you know, implicitly, but you can make it explicit as well. And, and how do you feel? How do you feel about the climate emergency? And what do you see when you look at the future? Yeah, it's I like think, I think bringing getting it out of the closet to talk about. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think, I think we're going to do another we're going to add the next like uh, voice voice conversation we're going to do is going to be called I think future fears in which it's just it's it's like people are invited to share their apocalyptic uh, visions of what what could happen and like with with again just the same theory that yeah it's pretty dark but like it's reality like don't like it is, and it is worth living in reality. In closing, do you have any like you know advice that you would share with physicians who are trying to come to terms with how how is this something that I should engage in? You know, is this really the right thing for me to, to have a, an opinion about? Even yeah, so physicians are the number one, sometimes number two, most trusted profession in the, in the country. Um, that, I mean, that, which makes sense, uh, nurses also in the running up there. Um, but it, it makes sense. Everyone is, uh, reliant on doctors to take care of them, uh, you know, in some of their greatest moments of need. And, so giving giving that kind of advice, um, trusted advice and uh, crisis response, there there is a unique opportunity to be trusted messengers and to offer hard truths uh, that must be taken on um, and integrated and dealt with emotionally and socially and intellectually. Um, that, yeah, there is, there is a unique role here. And I think the place to start is by talking about it, getting, getting comfortable because absolutely every, yeah, everyone on earth right now is in danger because of the climate emergency. And we absolutely have both a right and I, I think a duty to engage with that and to talk about it. Um, as much as possible. So that's, that's where I would start is just, uh, yeah, the, the people, people are, listeners are absolutely uh, invited to take part in the breaking the silence, climate, um, climate emotions conversation that, that you took part in. Um, if they, if they want to join that, they can email FTCE at climatemobilization.org that's from facing the climate emergency, FTCE at climatemobilization.org. And we'll get you, we'll get you in one of those conversations. Um, but it's, you know, you can you can try it with your friends and family and partner, you know, just casually, right? I, like 
Yeah. And it's, it is kind of uncomfortable because it's been a taboo, but uh, it's doable. You know, you can, you can, um, you can get comfortable with this. And yeah, you absolutely do not need a master's degree in climate science. In fact, you will probably be a more effective communicator without. So super, super grateful for your work um, and your time. And I, I really think that you're such an inspiration um, for me, I can say, and, and I think so many others. So um, thank you. And uh, would love to kind of, you know, stay connected in, in, in the work for saving everything we love. Thank you so much for listening to the season finale of Courageous Medicine for the Climate Health Crisis, stories of physicians activating on climate. Before you go, check out Dr. Margaret Klein-Salomon's self-help book, Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth, as well as her website, theclimatemobilization.org. If you would like to take part in breaking the silence, sharing climate emergency feelings, more information can be found in the episode description. We'll have more episodes up in January. Until then, this is Angela Geronimo. Be courageous, stay healthy, and share these podcasts with your friends and colleagues.